Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Well, good morning, everyone. I join Jeff with, uh, with uh, the excitement that he has uh, for this being a game-changing day for, for the Dallas-Fort Worth area and, and all of North Texas. Um, Ambassador, we look forward to hearing from you today about your progressive country and its relations with our own as we celebrate this new Qantas flight from DFW to Sydney and to Brisbane. I'd like to especially thank our partners for this morning's program, the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport and the North Texas Commission. Now, it truly is my pleasure to introduce His Excellency Kim Beasley, the Ambassador of Australia to the United States, on this grand occasion, marking the inaugural round-trip flight connecting North Texas with our good friends down under. Ambassador Beasley, as you know, in many ways, this is a match made in heaven. Texas is the Lone Star State, and Australia, the Lone Star Country. The fabric of Texas is imbued with a cowboy mentality very similar to the tough Aussie blokeness. Our landscape here resembles your outback. You have windmills, we have windmills. You have barbed wire, we have barbed wire. <laughs> where there's barbed wire, you find herds of animals. And where, where there are herds, there are usually barbecues. And we both certainly enjoy those, although Texas beef eaters think you Australians have gone a little bit overboard with your obsession with lamb. During research for this introduction, I stumbled across the AustralianLamb.com website where I noted you folks now have your own Australia Lamb iPhone app. <laughs> I'm afraid we just can't match that, although I'm sure we've got someone fervently working on an Angus app out there somewhere. Anyway, and above all, we the people of the Armadillo State share a kindred spirit with you, the Denzians of the Kangaroo Country. Our two Lone Stars were both built out of the same passionate, pioneering spirit and strong work ethic, and today we thrive together as a result. In fact, it could be said that Ambassador Beasley's career in Australian politics brightly reflects all of that and more. Born in Perth, he completed his Bachelor of Arts and Master's of Arts uh, at the University of Western Australia and was awarded the Rhodes Scholarship for Western Australia in 1973, then took his Master's of Philosophy from Oxford University. He was elected to the federal parliament in 1980 to represent the electorates of Swan through 1996, then Brand until 2007. After his retirement from politics in 2007, Ambassador Beasley returned to the University of Western Australia to accept the post of Winthrop Professor in the Department of Politics and International Relations. In July of 2008, he was appointed Chancellor of the Australian National University, a position he held until December of 2009. Ambassador Beasley then took up his appointment as the ambassador to the United States in February 2010. In 2009, Ambassador Beasley was awarded the Companion of the Order of Australia for Service to the Parliament of Australia through contributions to the development of government defense and international relations policies and as an advocate for the indigenous people of Australia. Please join me in extending a warm Texas welcome to His Excellency Kim Beasley, Ambassador of Australia to the United States.
Well, thank you very much, Tim, for that terrific introduction and for mentioning everybody whom I ought to mention in the uh, way in which I open my remarks. So to the many distinguished guests that were acknowledged by Tim, I acknowledge you. And, uh, and thank you very much for uh, coming here. And Mr Mayor, thank you particularly for coming with some of your councillors who I understood was, were elected over the weekend. And, um, you know, I know something about electoral politics and there is nothing like the sense of relief that comes when, even if it's quite tight, the numbers go up on election night and, uh, or in my case, usually about 10 days later when they completed the counting. And you knew you had two or three years ahead of you in which you didn't have to worry. And um, that uh, is a, a sense of relief that only a very small number of people can share, but I do know how, uh, how you all feel today. And it's terrific to have Nana here. Nana does a fantastic job for Australia in Texas. She is a marvellous representative for us, and uh, we are grateful for all she does. And Wally Mariani, who some of you will know, is, uh, and many of you will know a great deal better as the years go by, because he heads up Qantas here in uh, North America. <coughs> he's, uh, he's also uh, not only a terrific representative for Qantas, but a great representative for Australia. We love Qantas, we Australians, we just don't help them out. Um, they, as they, they represent all that's independent in the Australian spirit because they can get almost nothing out of the government and, um, the, and, and uh, nothing but criticism when anything goes wrong from the Australian people, but we all fly. <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the end of the day, that's what we do. So long-suffering, uh, Qantas, uh, uh, Qantas takes, to, takes to the air and uh, carries the Australian flag with it effectively uh, wherever Qantas goes. No, uh, it's always good to be in the United States. I've been here now for 15 months in this job. I'd visited the United States 20 times before then, starting in 1969, for very many purposes, study, as, uh, as a political, as, as a minister in, uh, in governments. So I always love it when I'm here, but it's been a particularly good two weeks, this last couple of weeks because of, there's been an element of closure in which really American competence, American patience, American subtlety, uh, the effectiveness of American technologies was actually re-demonstrated. And then a president sensibly saying, hang on, this is not something in which we go into overdrive on commemoration or celebration." is something where we acknowledge the job of our armed services and intelligence services and we move on, and we move on in unity. There's something special about that because there's something special about the United States for those of us who are friends and allies of the United States for a very long time. And, uh, and this, this is a little bit of a part of it. Another bit of a part of it is what you all do at... Uh, the airport, Dallas-Fort Worth airport here for your, your transiting warriors. I understand that you have a greeting service there and you've greeted this January your millionth warrior uh, passing through. That respect from middle America for the people who sacrifice for the nation is also very much part of what it is to uh, be an American. We in the rest of the world have relied on this strength this internal strength of Mr and Mrs Average 
in middle America really since World War II. The US had choices after World War II. The US could have chosen then successfully to retreat back into isolation. The US would have been enormously prosperous. The US would have been easily defended. Nobody could have successfully uh, attacked the United States uh, then or ever subsequently. And so choices could be made because choices were available. The Americans entered the nuclear age choosing to render themselves hostages. United States administrations determined in the aftermath of World War II that the American population would be hostage to the good behaviour of the continents of Europe and North Asia, where the worst of human conflicts were endemic. What a risk. What a thing to do, what the United States did then. And it wasn't the presidents in the end who decided this. It was the people. It was Mr and Mrs Smith of Dallas, Texas, who decided that, because they kept voting in governments that were prepared to hold them hostage to the good behaviour of the rest of the world. There has been no sacrifice made by any people at any point of time in human history that equates with that, because if it had gone wrong, 140 million of you would have died and this civilization would have disappeared. It's an extraordinary thing and nobody gives the US much credit for it, but nevertheless, it happens to be true. So uh, when you're an ally of the United States, you should always bear that in mind because there is an internal strength here in the American people which uh, uh, is uh, really unsurpassed. And you show it in little ways and sometimes you show it in big ways. Well, when I got off the plane here uh, a couple of months ago, because I do come here a bit, um, you could smell the burning meat and the cigar and it smelt like my type of place. And so it is, I think, for many Australians. Uh, the, your population here, the industry, the agriculture, the energy uh, uh, extraction, it's in many ways very like Australia. That uh, profile, that economic and population profile that Texas presents. There are differences, of course, in that. You're more heavily weighted than we are in high-tech manufacturing. We are more heavily weighted than you are uh, in, in complexity of mining, a much vaster array of minerals that, uh, that we extract. So that's, that's a difference. There are also differences in the ethnic composition of the two populations, but a very similar attitude to the, uh, to the diversity in each of our societies. This is one of the most open-hearted states of a very open-hearted country, and Australia is an open-hearted country when it comes to the extensive array of communities uh, that, uh, that now make up their, our population. So that's, that's a considerable similarity. The first time I came here was 27 years ago. And I came explicitly to look at the airport. I was then the aviation minister in Australia. Australians are obsessed with aviation. We have been historically. We've, uh, we've uh, played quite a substantial role in development of international aviation over the years. So we had a separate, Austra until very recently, we had a separate Australian aviation minister. And uh, my job as aviation minister was to 
uh, to look at a new idea that was being developed here at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, and that was the idea of hubbing. Because you had just abandoned the regulatory arrangements for uh, aviation that dominated uh, the uh, landscape of aviation in the United States, in which people were prepared to fly long, thin routes, uh, basically in that regulated environment. The regulation had gone. People needed to work out how you could operate profitably in a... A low, uh, a low cost and highly competitive environment. The idea of hubbing grew. And so um, I was deputed to come here and look at how hubbing was working at, uh, at Dallas-Fort Worth. This was the peak, or the apogee, if you like, of uh, airport planning in the new aviation environment. It was brilliant. I was enormously impressed, but there was a problem. Australia is just simply all long, thin routes, and hubbing doesn't actually make sense. So we were thinking about doing it at Sydney, and then we said, well, what's the point? We've got six population centres hundreds of miles apart. Whatever we do, we're just going to have to fly the old-fashioned way, uh, so you won't be able to do what uh, you think you might be able to, what is actually being done in the United States out of Dallas-Fort Worth. So it's, a, uh, it's interesting now seeing... Qantas flying in to take advantage 27 years later of exactly that. Because Qantas has a good partner in American Airlines and the alliance that, uh, that uh, Qantas is, uh, is now part of. So in a sense, Qantas is in a position to exploit a hub. Now, it's had that relationship with American Airlines for quite a long time, but the landfall point was uh, the West Coast. And now Qantas has decided to situate itself at the heart of... US aviation, at a hub which is conveniently placed to just about every, every uh, conceivable destination in the lower 48. So it's a very, very, uh, a very sensible uh, proposition that that aircraft, which is now about an hour beyond Hawaii, that we will welcome in, in uh, uh, at around about uh, 2 o'clock, I think. Um, that represents an interesting, a bit of a game-changer too in many ways for Qantas operating uh, into, uh, into uh, this area. And it's a vital point for Australia as well because this is an important hub in what is now for Australians our most significant international economic partner. Now, those of you who know something about the debate in Australia and uh, our argument, so to say, this guy is gilding the lily. This guy is actually not saying the truth. We who know about Australian trade patterns understand that Australia's primary trading partner, not overwhelming, but primary trading partner, is China. And before that, it was Japan. And the United States is in line behind that. So what's he talking about? And you'd be quite right if you were to say that. We have a massive trading relationship with the East Asian region. Uh, it's an important part of, uh, of doing business with Australia, the fact uh, that you know that. Uh, the, uh, we have more Chinese investment in Australia than there is Chinese investment in the United States. We have more Chinese students in Australia than there are Chinese students in the United States. Pause and think about that. 
we're about one-fifteenth the population of you. And I'm not talking in relative terms, I'm talking in absolute terms uh, when, I, uh, when I use those stats. The Chinese consulate in my hometown of Perth in Western Australia is larger than the United States Embassy in Canberra. Uh, this is a very extensive relationship. Australia supplies about 70% of China's iron ore. We supply most of their, um, uh, of their coal imports. Australia is the world's largest coal exporter. That's not necessarily an advantage these days, but nevertheless, it happens to be the truth. The Americans have just joined ownership through Peabody of coal uh, in Australia uh, through that process. Currently, Australia is the world's fifth largest producer of natural gas. Courtesy of ConocoPhillips and Chevron, two uh, organisations well known uh, in these parts who are massively increasing their investments in Australia, so much so that most of ConocoPhillips' production ten years from now will be derived from Australia, not from the United States or anywhere else. But uh, because of what they're doing, by, with 10 years' time, Australia will pass Qatar as the world's largest exporter of natural gas. So you look at all those things and you say, well, what's he doing standing up here saying that the United States is Australia's most important economic partner when you look at it against those statistics? Well... That's trade. Go to investment. And if you're going to characterise it in one sentence, you'd say this. Australia sells to China and East Asia and it invests in the United States. Those investment figures that I talk to vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese are investments into Australia, not Australian investments into uh, China. So when you look at the comparative statistics in two-way investment between Australia and the United States, that is now over 900 billion. It'll hit the trillion sometime in the next, uh, the next year or two. In relation to China, it's 90 billion. So that gives you a bit of a sense of the proportionality uh, when it comes to investment. And Australia is having a surge of overseas investment and most of it is coming here. There are now 9,000 Australian companies operating in the United States. The average wage in those companies is about $70,000 a year, which tells you something of what those sorts of companies are that are coming in. Though the big ticket companies like BHP Billiton, which is the world's 10th largest the uh, 10th largest firm, and its energy uh, component is headquartered here, run by an ex-Marine Texan in Houston. Uh, BHP Billiton is, of course, a standard bearer, and it's a heavy, heavily involved in drilling uh, and oil production in the Gulf. It's the little firms, the little high-tech firms, that discover there is no capacity to secure risk capital in Australia and they are surging into the United States to prove up their product, and having proved it up, list. And when they've listed, then Australian investors 
are actually able to buy into them. This is an odd pattern. We have the fourth largest sum of funds under management in Australia, and uh, in the world, that is, courtesy of our superannuation arrangements. And um, the problem for us is that the rules under which they can invest do not permit them to invest in risk capital. So all Australian savings out there is tied up in sure things, not in risk. There's now 1.7 trillion in those funds. In 10 years' time, that will be 5 trillion. These uh, funds are increasing exponentially. And uh, where they invest, they can only, Australia can only absorb around about 40% of them. So in each new amount coming in, 60% effectively has to be invested somewhere else. All right, we will never relax, because these are people's retirements, we will never relax the provisions which place constraints on them being able to invest in risk, uh, risk capital. So uh, there will always be that pattern, and that pattern will increase because there's a great deal of inventiveness in Australian universities and Australian research institutes and the like. They are producing lots of products, but there's only one place. Well, it's not, there's, there are many places, but they choose one place in which to develop them, and that's here, here in the United States. Hitherto, most of that has been done in California. There is a relationship, I believe, between the choices that are made by people setting up these businesses and where Qantas flies. Australians have very high levels of confidence, as I said, in Qantas, and so they fly into... Uh, into uh, California, and that's where they stop. Um, they set up, head, or may, may, they may stop in Silicon Valley up from San Francisco, or they stop there. Flying in here, they will discover these things. This is a hub not only of American aviation, it's a hub of high technology American investment. This is this state, a terrific place to set up and get yourself going. This is a state of great investor friendliness. This is a state where uh, people will give you a great deal of room to move if you are wanting to get a business going. And it's also attracting uh, attention for other reasons in Australia, which will bring in itself additional Australian uh, uh, business here. And that is, we are, you, you probably know, that we are the, the third largest port, uh, uh, purchaser of American weapon systems. And our biggest uh, program at the moment is um, uh, the Joint Strike Fighter, the F-35, and, uh, which was why I was down here about a, a couple of months ago to see what the progress was like on that. That's our biggest defence outlay. But also, it's a, it's a jointly product joint strike fighter, as the name suggests. So there are a number of Australian firms who are associated with bits and pieces uh, of the aircraft. And that will itself, I think, augment the focus that's on Qantas's flights in here now, because it is another thing putting what is already a very big portion of the map, Texas, even more prominently uh, on the map for, uh, for ordinary, ordinary Australians. 
And it also links into what is an increasingly important part of our relationship. It's always been important, but it's an increasingly important part. And I'll just conclude with this. This is the 60th anniversary this year of the ANZUS Alliance uh, between Australia and the United States. That is the basic document of Australian-American uh, military collaboration. When it was negotiated 60 years ago, it was negotiated by the Americans with gritted teeth. Um, the Americans then did not want to engage with the South Pacific. The focal points of the Cold War were North Asia and Europe, and the American Joint Chiefs said, what's the point of a military alliance in the South Pacific? No point at all was uh, their view, and the Australians are pests. And the American administration said, yes, the Australians are pests and they won't sign the Japanese peace treaty unless we agree to have a military alliance with them. So we will have a military alliance with Australia. <laughs> you wouldn't necessarily say that was the most auspicious beginning of a, uh, <laughs> of a, of a document. Uh, of course, it, it built marvellously on the collaboration that uh, Australia had with the United States during uh, World War II, which has, a, a, has won enormous commemoration, not here in Dallas, but in Houston each year, because the uh, HMAS Perth, named after my hometown, went down with the USS Houston, resisting the Japanese uh, invasion of, uh, of uh, the Indonesian part of uh, the Greater East Asian Coast Prosperity Sphere that they were trying to establish at the time. And uh, MacArthur came to Australia to, uh, to command Australian and American forces in the southwest Pacific. There's a little secret here. Roosevelt and King and Marshall didn't like MacArthur. They thought MacArthur was a royal nuisance. And they were rather happy to see him in Australia and they were happy not to give him any American troops. So poor old MacArthur did not have more Americans under his command than he had Australians until 1944. So in Doug's communiques that used to come out in 1942-43, they were allied victories involving US troops, which would usually be one or two officers. But nevertheless, that was a... Uh, things changed in 1944 as Roosevelt uh, discovered that uh, he could keep uh, MacArthur out of any Republican conventions if he... Um, <laughs> if he just gave him command of the invasion of Japan and, um, and sent him his way through the Philippines rather than Admiral King's way through Formosa. So uh, we, we had a very close relationship in, in World War II, but it had interesting sides to it. It changed really in the 1960s when we decided in Australia to share a little bit of that burden that I was talking about a little earlier on, that the American people shared. And uh, I often say the, the two people who really set up the Australian-American alliance were uh, one side JFK and the other McNamara, his defence secretary. Because McNamara decided to launch US nuclear forces as a triad and massively build them up. And that required early warning facilities, communications facilities for ballistic missile submarines and intelligence facilities surveilling the capacities of the Soviet Union. And they needed a quiet, secure place to put 
a large number of these facilities, and guess where that was? So all of a sudden, the relationship changed. And changed a little bit on another front too, because we accepted what you all accepted. That now, a nuclear war in which we would not necessarily have been engaged, we would now be engaged. So we were hostages too. And uh, so we joined Americans in that hostage status uh, during the course of the 1960s. And by the end of that, Australia supplied 50% of America's early warning time. So the early warning ground stations in Australia told the United States of when they were likely to be under a missile attack, which was awfully useful attribute whenever the Aurora Borealis showed up on the Canadian distant early warning systems as a massive Soviet missile strike. <laughs> it was, which it did on the odd occasion. Uh, so it was useful to be able to check with Narunga in Australia to say, are we really under attack? <laughs> well, things have changed technologically, but those facilities are still critical. And we can't talk about the content of those facilities. But I do say this when I go to uh, gatherings like this in the United States. Were we to put an entire, the entire Australian army into Afghanistan, and there is a portion of it there now, and the entire Australian Navy into the Persian Gulf, and the entire Australian Air Force into the Persian Gulf, we would not do as much for the day-to-day -day operations that proceed now in that area as is done by the joint facilities that are in Australia. And that's about as much as you can say about them but they still remain absolutely critical to our alliance relationship and those operations. Well, all this is going to be enormously strengthened as a result of the decisions that have been taken here by Qantas, or reflected here, because it's a decision that's taken 10 years to make uh, and uh, negotiate with the airport here. Now, this is going to be a new dimension to the relationship for Australian people. Uh, they have a a very California state of mind, I have to say. John Howard, my nemesis in politics, was once asked by um, uh, an American journalist, what was Australia like? And he said, well, it's like California, only more supportive of the US government. <laughs> but uh, the... Um... <laughs> but actually, in fact, Australia is like a lot of places in the United States. Australians know it's like California because that's where Australians go. When Australians come here in larger and larger numbers, they'll know it's like Texas. And uh, in attitudes, cast of mind, in many ways, very much more like Texas than it is like any other part of the United States. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. We have a tradition here to give the first question to a student, and the student this morning is Saeed Najimi, and he asks, where is Australia standing today in regards to the global economy? And I might add to that, how did Australia weather the Great Recession? Oh, right. That's a, that's a very good uh, question. We're quite small, really. Uh, we'd be about 2 or 3% of the global economy. We're a, uh, we're, we're a small place from that point of view. We weathered the Great Recession reasonably well. 
Currently, unemployment figures in Australia are about 4.8 per cent. There is, uh, we've got about 3 per cent growth. Uh, we're, we're going okay. We, we, we went okay for two reasons. Firstly, the stimulus that was put in place by the government really worked. It was huge, it was upfront, it was truly massive, and it was in people's pockets. The Australian government gave everybody $1,000 and uh, like everybody and everybody went out and spent it everybody <laughs> said that they would save it and everybody kidded themselves and uh, so they went out and spent it so we had uh, the, a stimulus that worked early and hard and then the the Chinese we, we were talking about the Chinese a bit earlier on people forget this in the first few months of the GFC 30 million Chinese lost their jobs. Chinese government has to handle effectively about 150 million internal refugees, otherwise known as the rural workforce shifting to the capital cities. The Chinese don't have a social security system or a support system for people who are unemployed. So if you go out of work in the cities, you are potentially a revolutionary force. So the Chinese acted to massively stimulate their economy. And in the process of massively stimulating their economy, they massively increased their demand for Australian resources. Hence the, the growth numbers that uh, I mentioned. Questions from the floor, please. Now, I wouldn't expect that from this audience. <laughs> yes. The uh, flight going daily instead of four days a week, any guidance for that? Or, or what would need to happen? Well, you get on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yes, the guidance for that is if you want it daily instead of four a week, use it. And uh, Qantas will certainly respond to that. It would help if we could get the 787s up and running. That's what is supposed to fly the route. And I think uh, when the 787s actually are flying the route, then you'll probably see some changes. But that's, I don't speak for Qantas. They, uh, that's just a guess, an educated guess at where that will end up. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, sir. If you wait for the microphone, please. Thank you. Thank you for your speech. Recently, South Africa has formally joined the BRICS to make it a five BRICS country. What and how Australia can position yourself to face this type of trade blocks? Hmm. We, we uh, uh, try to break them down. Uh, we, on, on the trade front in the 1980s, Australia unilaterally disarmed. There was a left-wing government in office and they decided to collapse all tariffs and all quotas and float the Australian dollar. It was an agreement made with the trade unions who decided to freeze their wages to lift businesses' profit share. And uh, the, to encourage business to invest in restructuring so that business would be internationally competitive. About 11% of US GDP is in foreign trade. 
that figure in Australia is about 25. So we heavily, uh, we heavily engage uh, internationally. We have to heavily engage internationally. And therefore, we tend to be worried by trading blocks. Um, we're negotiating one ourselves at the moment with you and your, uh, your former mayor of this town, Ron Kirk, is heading up the American side of it with the Trans-Pacific Partnership and I, and I certainly hope he succeeds in that, in getting that through. But the way we look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership is we look at it very much in the context of uh, advancing American influence in the East Asian region more than Australia making money out of it. We see American influence as important to advance in that region. Our, uh, our commitment is the Doha round, which nobody else seems to agree with. We are worried that if the Doha round does not succeed, the rules-based global trading system will be steadily undermined and we will be in serious trouble. So our focus tends to be on global free trade now, BRICS are important. Uh, they're they're a up-rising uh, um, countries. They sometimes get a little bit ahead of themselves. They're all in the G20, as Australia is, and uh, they are making a great deal about where the US dollar is going. And the Canadian finance minister, just a week or two ago, stood up and said, what are you fellas talking about? He said, you know, you take your currencies collectively, you don't trade internationally with your currencies one-tenth of the movement in the Australian dollar, of that, uh, of that fellow sitting over there as the Australian uh, Treasurer. He, uh, because we floated the dollar, it is now one of the heaviest, most heavily traded currencies internationally. That's good news and bad news. The bad news is it does make you super vulnerable. So how do we deal with what uh, the people that you talked about? Uh, well, we deal with them on the basis that we hope to encourage them by force of moral and, uh, and economic argument that their best interests are served by an open trading system. Because if the world starts to chip away at the open trading system, if the world starts to raise temporarily or even permanently protectionist barriers again, guess who's going to be the first to suffer? It won't actually be the United States, it'll be the BRICS. Roland, you have the last question. As I recall, a couple of three years ago, you had a great dispute with uh, East Timor over uh, drilling rights in the ocean there. Has that all been settled and calmed down? No. <laughs> <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> Can I just say, I, I, I noticed some friends who are there at uh, the back from the school, that uh, one of the nicest things as an Australian politician is to go into the different religious schools in Australia. Um, the, we have a slightly... There's, there's some things which we have a different approach to the United States. We don't have a clause in our constitution which talks about... Uh, which effectively forces a secular standing. So, uh, basically, most schools, religious schools in Australia, are funded by the national government. I was education minister at one point of time and we, we made some changes there. The, basically, because most... Australia's a majority Catholic country. 
And uh, so most of the kids of Catholic families go to Catholic schools, not to public schools. But they're poor, and therefore the only way for those schools to exist was to uh, do uh, direct uh, aid to them to ensure that they could survive. But once you did that, you couldn't discriminate. So there are lots of Islamic schools in Australia and they are funded by the national government, funded by the Australian taxpayer. Lots of Jewish schools, some Buddhist and some non-denominational, but they all receive funding by the uh, Australian federal government. So it's, it's always lovely to go to uh, the schools, that, uh, as you do, in your constituency and elsewhere and see the marvellous diversity, including the religious diversity of your society. Thank you, Thanks, sir. Steve. I hope you'll stay here for a minute. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Okay. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.com dot org